Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and today we have Lynn Twist on the show. Lynn, would you introduce yourself? Yes, um, I'm. Uh, my name is Lynn Twist, as you said. I'm. Um, I'm an author of a book called The Soul of Money and some other books, but that's kind of the primary one, which generated an institute called the Soul of Money Institute, uh, of which I'm the founder and president. And then I'm also the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, uh, which is an organization working in the Amazon rainforest with indigenous people. And then out of the lessons learned from that, uh, doing um, uh, transformational programs in 88 countries uh, to awaken people to the uh, opportunity of an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. I'm also a consultant and strategist for the Nobel Women Peace Prize laureates, uh, women who won the Nobel Prize have come together to work on women's issues worldwide. So I'm a what I call a pro-activist, not an activist against, but an activist for. Um, I'm also a, a, a mother and a grandmother and a wife and a sister and all of those things, and a Hoffman graduate, a proud Hoffman graduate. So that's a few wow. things about me. You know, in following your work over the years, Lynn, and then in preparing for this interview, I'm struck with how the breadth of your work, do you feel that as you look back on your career, first starting with the Hunger Project? Do you, it's such a broad stroke of deep commitment to change. Uh, well, the Hunger Project was, uh, I didn't even mention that um, uh, because it's uh, it's in the past, but it really was my very important training program to understand the world uh, working on ending world hunger is um is a very powerful teaching uh to receive uh when you tackle something that big um and so 25 years of working for the hunger project and developing our volunteer network around the world and uh trading fifty thousand fundraisers in something like 56 countries um really had an impact on me and my uh, experiences and our commitment and intention was and still is that it have a commitment on the world. Um, and from that work, I've learned a lot about the relationship with people and money, which is such a troubled part of our culture, such a troubled part of people's lives. So the Soul Money Institute is uh, the result of, the, of of all the things I've learned about that, people's relationship with money, really, not, not finance exactly, but so that's made a big, big impact, I think, I hope, and still does. And then the Pachamama Alliance, um, uh, working with indigenous people was a whole nother deep dive into a, another level of uh, consciousness, another level of uh, spiritual uh, um, depth, uh, the, the profound relationship they have with their own uh, heart and spirit, and then particularly their relationship with all life, the natural world. That really has been an enormous blessing in the last 25 years. So 50 years of being out there in the trenches 
does teach you a lot. And also, uh, of course, one does that to make a difference. So I, I've been very, very, very fortunate to to work with extraordinary people in extraordinary places on extraordinary things. So yes, I yes, think you've I you've think been with local people in the community, and you've also been with Desmond Tutu, Dalai Lama, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Oprah, Brene Brown, so many, Jane Goodall, so many um, uh, collaborators. Uh, and and I, I, I know that um, you also say our legacy is not what we live. It is what we live, not what we leave. And I'm imagining that uh, the the um, the living is where you are uh, and have spent so much of your time. What's that like to look back on your career and see such work? Um, well, let me think. I don't do that that often. Looking back, I'm uh, so engaged in the present right now. Thank God that I have those skills from, from the Hoffman training and other things. And so uh, concerned and committed to uh, uh, a future, a healthy future. So I don't look back that much. It's almost like that, all of that work and those wonderful relationships that you mentioned, plus the people that don't have famous names, like the, the people that many of us would have called poor uh, or hungry, those extraordinary people living in oppressive and harsh conditions have so much to teach us and so much wisdom, so much humility, so much access to their own spiritual depths, because uh, that's where they go in order to survive. They go to their inner life. Um, but all of that has been a foundation for, um, for what I'm really realizing is this epic, epic, epic time in human history where we've, we really have the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility to turn the tide. So my, my gaze is really forward uh, rather than backwards, <laughs> but I, I'm proud of what I've done and feel so grateful for it and so blessed, so I can say that. I love the forward focus and the, the identity of this moment as a chance to uh, uh, even move the needle of change even further. So, but just to try and place Hoffman in that long arc of your career, wh when did you do the process? I'm pretty sure that I did it in the year 2000. I actually don't know. I can't remember. It's 20, probably 20 years ago. And, um, uh, and then I have a very wonderful relationship with Hoffman because when I, you know, enroll people or recommend it or urge people to do it. And I get to go to the graduations. Uh, that wonderful experience just nurtures me so much. And then I'm, I'm very close to Raz and Liza. And um, uh, so I'm, I feel very close to Hoffman through that, the wonderful relationship I have with them, uh, Raz and Grassi and Liza and Grassi. So um, 20 years ago, I took Hoffman and I took it. It's so interesting to, to think about that. I took it without really realizing what, I guess no one knows till they get into the Hoffman training what it is, but I, I took it really to support Raz and Liza because I love them so much and had known them for many years and was so proud that they had uh, taken the Hoffman quadrinity process and made it so vibrant and so 
fresh and so new. This is 20 years ago, and now it's even more awesome. So um, I, I did it sort of to support them. And then, of course, it ended up being a total transformation for me. Um, and uh, I'm super grateful <laughs> to Hoffman. And, and, and anybody I've ever sent there is too. So it's, it's unfailingly one of the best ways a person can, um, can transform their own life and be of greater use to the world. And what, what do you remember from your process or what was your takeaway? How do you fit Hoffman into how you hold your work or how you hold yourself? Well, I, I was a very devoted uh, part of the Est movement and the landmark work. And um, Hoffman, and, and the landmark work and the Est work is a really wonderful, I think, part of our uh, of, of the breadth of things that are available. And it really, really woke me up, woke me out a big time. And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, and doesn't really deal with spiritual work or psychological work. I mean, you have great benefits from it that nourish those parts of yourself, but it doesn't address that. Um, whereas Hoffman really went deep into my childhood and my relationship with my parents and how I grew up and uh, those frames uh, and what I call life sentences that you get caught in. Uh, and so that when I took Hoffman, I realized it, it and I did have a happy childhood. I remember a phrase, I think it's from Hoffman, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. I think that's from Hoffman. I had what most people would call a happy childhood, and I thought so too. Uh, and then, of course, there's things that I hadn't really addressed fully or even remembered. So the, the excavation that Hoffman was for me into the roots and shoots of my life uh, really cleared up, uh, freed me, liberated me, opened me, um, healed me, and transformed me in, uh, in a thousand dimensions. And after I took it, I thought, oh my God, every single leader who has any, you know, really huge responsibilities or even small responsibilities, but definitely huge responsibilities, like the president of every country should take this course. I mean, just so that we're not working out our relationship with our parents while we're trying to change the world, um, to actually get that completed enough that we're our own person. And that's, that's what I experienced. And that's what I feel uh, was one of the great contributions I received from Hoffman, um, that I was, that I could stop trying to prove myself to my dad or prove myself to my mom or my older sisters, but just to be myself. So I, I love that uh, outcome, and I loved the process, and I loved the integrity with which it was conducted. Yeah, I noticed that you, you know so many people struggle with in in helping the world and in solving world hunger and other problems. They see it; it, it can be a forced polarity, an either or. But what you what what you do is you hold both the internal work and the internal nourishing of your soul along with the external work of, of supporting change in the world and people who are marginalized and oppressed. You do both of those. That is, those are very congruous, not incongruous, aren't they for you? Yes. And, and that's always been true for me. Um, 
I have a very rich inner life. I have had that since I was a child. But it got validated and affirmed in Hoffman. It also got validated and affirmed in The Hunger Project because uh, The Hunger Project has always been about not only the the um, tragedy of malnutrition, starvation, uh, malabsorptive hunger, all the different forms of hunger that ravage the physical body, but also the inner hunger, the hunger to make a difference with our life, the hunger to matter, the hunger to be of service to the world, the hunger to be of use. And The Hunger Project was always working um, in those two dimensions from the very beginning of The Hunger Project's uh, uh, moment that it was born. So. I got a lot of um, training in that on a global scale because most global issues aren't addressed that way with the, with the kind of inner and outer dimensions of the global issue. And the Hunger Project really brought that to the hunger issue and it brought that to a very high relief in my addressing of all the issues that I see. So the Pachamama Alliance also deals with the inner life. And Hoffman just is just a, a, a beacon of um, integrity for that kind of work. You know, um, thank you for that uh, that compliment. As a teacher, I I uh, I'm proud to to be a part of the. I love how you said it—a rich inner life. Um, but I want to I want to ask about another apparent dichotomy that that really isn't um and that is your ability to both feel pain and to celebrate joy in some of your interviews you spoke about uh, being on uh, working with people who have experienced such tragedy and trauma in rwanda and yet also being at a conference where when they came together they celebrated can you share a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Well, at least my experience is that the pain and joy of life are one. It's all a continuum. And that um, especially I've learned this from people living in really harsh conditions like Mozambique after the war, brutal, brutal war there, or Liberia after that horrendous war. Those two countries in particular show up when I say this, that the capacity to endure suffering, the deep uh, pain um, that comes with, with suffering, is, it's almost like uh, pain and joy are connected and they're the uh, opposite ends of a, of a whole spectrum. And the deeper the pain, the more you, uh, you expand your capacity for joy. And um, I don't know if this is true or false, but in Africa, with particularly women who've been raped and their children have been stolen for child soldiers and they've been uh, oppressed and silenced and beaten and, you know, unimaginable horrible things have happened to them. Uh, and they've endured them and survived them and found a strength from enduring them that then when released into the uh, capacity to celebrate and be joyful is, is just mind-boggling it's stunning it's spectacular <laughs> and i i may may uh may have said this in the example that you were giving but i'll, I'll just give an example of a, a conference i was in 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 ireland with um 
with the Nobel Women Peace Prize laureates. One of them who hosted it was Moraid McGuire, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, ending the troubles in Ireland. She mobilized 10,000 mothers to stop the killing in Ireland. And she was hosting a, a conference for the Nobel Women's Initiative organization. And one of the Nobel women is Shirin Ibadi, who's, who was the vice chairman of the Supreme Court in Iran be, under the Shah and fought for the revolution because she knew the Shah was corrupt. But then when the Ayatollah came in, he stripped all women judges of their power and took all women off the Supreme Court. And she became the clerk in the very court where she was the very, very highest judge in the land. And and then her, her office was burned and her staff was killed. And, you know, she went through horrible, horrible uh, repression and um, and then she was exiled. And so I, I'm telling you this because we were at this conference and Shirin Yabadi, the woman from Iran who won the Nobel Prize in 2004, she... Um, runs a law firm that works to get women uh, who've been oppressed in Iran, uh, represents them in prison. And some of her closest allies, lawyers, PhDs, uh, other attorneys and, um, and ministers of government who had been imprisoned for speaking out against the massive oppression, press, oppression of women in Iran, uh, had been in prison, and some of them for six to eight years, uh, just taken away from their families, didn't have any contact with their children. I mean, horrible, horrible, highly skilled and educated professional women just locked up in prison for years. And she had fought for the release of three of them, and they were released in time for this conference. And these are friends of hers, you know, some of her schoolmates, some of her women that went to law school with her. And uh, they came to this conference, and I remember, I remember when she saw them, and we were standing outside this castle where the conference was taking place, and we were on a beautiful green, Irish green lawn. And they arrived in a minibus, these three women, had just been released from prison in Iran, had made the travel uh, uh, to Ireland, and they got out of this minivan, and they saw Sharin, at one end of this large lawn in front of this castle. And these are women with, you know, scarves on their heads and long, beautiful Muslim garb, beautiful dresses. Uh, and they ran towards each other, um, screaming with, oh, it makes me cry, with joy and ecstasy to be reunited, to be released from the horrors of prison in Iran. And, um, and they rolled on the ground together with... Shirin and her translators, also named Shirin, and we were there, we, we being the other women, we witnessed this reunion of women who fought for the revolution and then been crushed by the same revolution they fought for. Um, and the joy that they had was so monumental. Uh, it was like an explosion of joy, uh, of, of female, feminine glorious, gorgeous joy. And then that night, uh, at the end of the day of, of meetings, we had a, a party, and it was all women, and we danced. Uh, and they put on this beautiful Arabic music, and we danced, and we danced, and we danced, and we danced. And I just remember thinking, I don't think I've ever seen people so happy in my whole life. 
I didn't even know you could be that happy for an extended period of time. So uh, it, 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 it's sort of a story that illustrates, at least in my experience, this, uh, this capacity for joy is as deep and profound and as great and as extensive uh, as it can be, almost in, in, um, in opposition to or as an extension of the horror and suffering that they experienced, the pain um, that they went through. So I don't know if that's true, but I've seen it with my eyes over and over again in Africa, in Bangladesh, in India, in places where people, particularly women, have been suppressed when they are liberated or when they can express themselves. Their expression is, is, is simply breathtaking. Mm. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it is one of the things that in the process we support people in not engaging in a kind of spiritual bypass, although there are many components to the process that are deep and soulful and spiritual. There's also a, uh, an embrace of our full humanity, play, joy, love, um, hurt, anger, sadness, pain, all of it. And I, I appreciate how you have framed choosing love over fear. Do you see that that is at much of the core of your work, this continual choosing of love over fear moment to moment? Yeah, I think it is probably core to, I hope everybody's work, but certainly mine. I, I, um, Mother Teresa said this amazing thing that stays with me and is something like, you know, the quote right in front of me, that she said, the unadulterated love of one person can nullify the hatred of millions. And um, that, that's such a powerful statement. Um, uh, and I think love is not the opposite of fear. I think it's the absence of it. It's almost as if when you're in that presence of experiencing, receiving, or giving love, you can't be afraid. There's just no room for fear in the, maybe in the brain, I don't know enough about neurology, but um, it, somehow in the body, when you're experiencing love, um, real love, deep love, passionate, uh, profound, all-encompassing love, not a duality love, but uh, it, it, it fear evaporates and um, you become kind of fearless, uh, fierce love in that way. So I, I, I've been in war zones, I've been in refugee camps, I've been in places where there's a lot of danger, uh, where some bad things could really happen to you. I mean, it's just bad things that happened to the people that I was working with and they can certainly happen to me. But the amount of um, love that I've seen, like when I travel with the Nobel women, they go to hot spots, they go to really dangerous places. But somehow I feel that we're protected by the power of love, uh, by the uh, energetic field that the radiance that comes from being there in service of love. And it seems to me that love is way, 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 way more powerful than anything else. Um, 
And as Martin Luther King said, not love that's anemic and weak, but love that's coupled with real, honest power uh, um, is, is, is unstoppable. It's unstoppable, and I think it's what drives every, every real, real change. Uh, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, uh, Mother Teresa, Jane Goodall, Elizabeth McCann, Katie Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, all of these people who really made monumental change were people who did it from love, and they did it from a, a spiritual root. I mean, they weren't, they didn't have a position of authority. They weren't elected to anything. They, they, their power was love, uh, and they prevailed over huge monolithic structures of power and authority. Um, so, you know, we see it over and over again that love prevails um, more than anything. You know, Lynn, as a, um, a white male, certainly my perspective, my orientation towards the world is impacted by the dominant culture that white men are so much aligned with. And so you, you've, I know you've worked with Nobel laureates who are women, and much of your work has uh, supported women in, in their experiences as oppressed and marginalized people. And so I, what is it about the the feminine, the divine feminine, women, what, what, what brings you vitality around working with women and, and being a woman in this, uh, in much of the work that you do where, uh, you might be the only woman in the circle, uh, as you do this work? Well, God, that's a great question. I, I really, I'm writing another book kind of about this, so I'm so glad you asked me that. So I'm trying to get it out of myself or out of the universe. All um, right, great. I, Here I, we go. <laughs> I really think that this time that we're living in right now is um, is the Sophia, uh, I call it the Sophia century, um, the 21st century, uh, the, the century, the 100-year cycle when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come into balance. And um, and I don't mean in the corporate world or in the this world or the that world. I mean sort of energetically. Uh, and I also mean the feminine, the masculine will come into balance. You know, this is the, uh, this is the third millennium, the first hundred years of the third millennium. So that we're only 20 years into the third millennium. At the same time, I think the 2020s are the most important decade uh, of history. What happens in this 10 years from 2020 to 2030 will determine the future of life, in my view. Um, and it's this year where we're, when we're having this particular conversation is, uh, you know, six months into 2020, which has been defined by, at first, the pandemic, the most incredible, epic, uh, unprecedented uh, health crisis that the whole world, 7.6 billion people, is engaged in all together. And then, uh, in addition to that, climate change, global warming, every single living thing is engaged in that all together for the first time in history. 
and we have a complete uh, racial um, white supremacy uh, opening, break open, heartbreaking opening that seems to be globally uh, happening at the same time in history. Um, and we have a, a crisis in governance happening pretty much everywhere on the planet. And we have a financial crisis happening, economic crisis happening everywhere, everywhere on the planet. So we have multiple crises to work with here. We're not just, we don't have one little crisis. They're all big. They're all monumental. They're all epic. They're all historic. They're all happening at the same time. And they're all, I think, from the same source. And, um, you know, there's many theories about this, but my theory is that the original domination or hierarchy of dominating the mother, uh, the mother, the great mother, the earth, was the beginning of this uh, taking ourselves off course, uh, uh, being lorded over, lord, lording over, uh, having tried to control, trying to dominate. Uh, that has been defined in many ways as patriarchy. You could call it white supremacy. You could call it a lot of things. Uh, but it has a, uh, a, 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 a quality about it that ultimately is takes us places we don't mean to go, don't want to go. Uh, it's hurtful that marginalizes more and more and more of us, uh, not just humans, but uh, a million species have gone extinct since Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. A million species will never return. I mean, that's just horrendous. So here we are living with this, this paradigm that's clearly off, clearly not working. And I'm not saying it's men, uh, uh, but there's an off balance. And I think it is the masculine and the feminine being so out of balance now inside of each one of us that the emergence of women, the emergence of the feminine, the emergence of intuition, the emergence of letting ourselves feel things through rather than only think things through. Stop figuring it out, but feeling it with the uh, recent murder of George Floyd and every murder that preceded that and followed that, but particularly George Floyd murder was a, uh, a pinnacle of breaking open after being shut in and sheltering in place for all these months. We had the consciousness and the reflective energetic field to feel the pain of our African-American brother brothers and sisters rather than um, be informed about it and then intellectualize about what we're going to do about it. We feel it now, which when we feel, we, we have a completely different response. We have a deeper response. We don't react. We respond really deeply. It, and so it's kind of a visceral thing. It's visceral. And it's also emotional. Things don't move without emotion. Um, you have to be moved to really move the dial. Uh, and women are more, uh, women and the feminine is more open to being moved to, to intuition, to feel our way forward, to, uh, to not go into, um, already always kind of solving and fixing, uh, which is what we've done for so long. But the paradigm we've been living in is the you or me paradigm. You make it at my expense or I make it at your expense. Uh, 
and we need to move into the you and me paradigm where we're caring for each other, where we know we are each other. So that's not necessarily only feminine, but the feminine energy in all of us that emotes, that is emotional, that is uh, open to intuition, to uh, deep and profound um, uh, feelings, uh, it has been atrophied, has been held back, uh, has been not expressed in the human family. Uh, and so we are finding that that may be, and I say it is, the way through this, these multiple crises uh, and the emergence of women's leadership, the emergence of women's voices, the emergence of the feminine in both men and women, uh, I think is the key factor of coming out of all these crises, the pandemic in particular, but all of these crises in a way that we uh, don't figure it out, but we feel our way through to an authentic new way of being. And um, so I called the Sophia Century, and there's a, a beautiful prophecy from the Cherokee people about this uh, this time in history that says the uh, the bird of humanity has two wings, a male wing and a female wing. And um, in the 21st century, something remarkable will happen with the bird of humanity. And for thousands of years, the bird of humanity has been flying primarily with the male wing. The male wing... Um, uh, has been working overtime to keep the bird of humanity afloat, while the female wing in all of us had been, has been not yet fully extended, not yet fully expressed. So the male wing has had to become overdeveloped, overmuscular, and in fact ultimately has become violent to keep the bird of humanity afloat and has been uh, so extremely violent that we've been flying in circles for hundreds of years. And as the female wing fully extends itself in all of us, um, uh, uh, that wing will allow the male wing to relax a little bit and the uh, bird of humanity will become balanced and stop flying in circles and we begin to soar. And that is a very visual uh, example of what I think the Sophia century is all about. Wow, what a great... Um story that that does illustrate what is needed that one wing doing all the work and almost being violent towards the other wing which further induces that kind of circular movement so i it would be as a as a white man again wishing for the fellow white male people who so dominate political and uh, corporate systems wishing for us to listen, to learn, to share, to not be needing to control. How have you found that work so far in, in getting men to understand this new Sophia century? Um, well, the, the main thing to uh, to make sure we don't do is that we don't make men wrong or masculine wrong. Uh, the bird of humanity metaphor, which is a prophecy, doesn't make the male wing wrong. It honors the male wing for doing everything it can to keep the bird of humanity flying, while the female wing is not yet fully expressed, not yet fully taking its its rightful role. 
Um, and it's, it's key, I think, to know that nobody's wrong here. We're just misguided. We've just lost our way. Uh, and once we discover and uncover and unconceal what we haven't been able to see, like haven't been able to see our own eyeballs, exactly what's happening with the racial uh, crisis we're in right now, people are seeing, white people in particular, white men and women, are seeing what they've never seen before about their own behavior. They're seeing what they've never seen before about their brothers and sisters who have black and brown skin. Uh, they're feeling what they've never felt before. We, it, it, it's, 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 we've been numb. We've been numb to the consequences of our actions, numb to the impact of our thinking, numb to the, uh, the horrendous uh, power of the mindset that we're living in. And it's breaking open. Um, I watched a, a documentary yesterday on uh, what has happened in the country since Martin Luther King. And you can see when you look back the way we used to think, that we don't think anymore, and realize we really thought that was true. You know, we really thought uh, that X, Y, and Z was true way, way, way back there. I remember being raised in, um, in Evanston, Illinois, uh, outside of Chicago, and, uh, and just the, what I learned and what I thought, I would never, ever in a million years think that now about African-American people, about black people, about, about who's, who's who and what has value and what doesn't. Uh, and it's, it's embarrassing to think I ever had thoughts like that. And I know in 20 years from now, if I'm still alive, I'll look back on 2020 and think, oh my God, how did I think that way back there in 2020? So we're not wrong. We're just unconscious. We're just unaware. We're misguided. We're in a paradigm of thinking that, that, that's inaccurate, that is inauthentic, that, is, uh, that takes us and guides us in direction we it's inconsistent with our own humanity. And that's really what Hoffman helps us break out of. I mean, it's so powerful what Hoffman does to free us from either the patriarch or patriarchy of our own family uh, or the patriarchy of our own mini culture. So uh, I, I think that's, that's what we're working with now, all of us everywhere on the whole planet. Thank God. Before we go, I just wanted to get your take on this. It's, I asked for wisdom and God gave me problems to learn to solve. I asked for prosperity and God gave me a brain and brawn to work. I asked for courage and God gave me dangers to overcome. I asked for love and God gave me people to help. I asked for favors and God gave me opportunities. I received nothing I wanted. I received everything I needed. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's not from me. That's from Hazrat Anayat Khan, but it's in my oh, book. Oh, right. Yeah, Sorry. he's a great that's Sufi. You quoted in your book. Beautiful. He's a great Sufi teacher. And I think that uh, beautiful, it's almost like a prayer, poem, prayer, that, uh, that says that we get exactly what we need to have the next transformation. Uh, we get exactly what we need to become the people we need to become. And I think humanity right now is receiving exactly what we need to become 
the species we need to become. Global warming is, is, is feedback. Uh, the racial crisis is feedback. The pandemic is feedback. The shamans in the rainforest say global warming, uh, uh, sorry, excuse me, that the pandemic, the virus, uh, is an, not a punishment. It's an ally. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Yes, there's suffering, of course, but we're in some sort of a birth canal, and it hurts, and there'll be some, some loss, but uh, what will be born will be worth the pain, the suffering, the loss, the letting go. Uh, and I think that's what's happening. Lynn, I'm so grateful for this conversation. What's it been like to talk about Hoffman and reflect here? Um, well, it's a gift to talk to you and your lovely, soft energy and um, deep voice is very soothing. Reminds me of, uh, of all the wonderful Hoffman teachers who are so gentle in their strength, so deep in their love, uh, so qualified in their um, capacity to serve. Um, so I'm reminded of the beauty, uh, the brilliance, uh, and the absolute uh, holy, sacred blessing of the Hoffman process. Thank you. And I know that uh, your day consists of maybe some time with grandkids. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that is the... The prize, I'll tell you. I mean, I'm sure every grandparent says that, and I, I say it too. It's, it's, a, it's a magical relationship that is worth waiting for, and I now realize the purpose of having children is so that you can have grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lynn, thank you very much. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Drew. Good luck and blessings to you and everybody at Hoffman. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.